0: you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 21. Um, let me pray for us. And just FYI, nothing else is going to happen on this board during the sermon. So the notes are with you. I'm not going to have any video clips. There's not going to be any pictures. Nothing's going to happen. So you can just focus on the text and taking note, notes if that's what you like to do, So just so you know, so you're not distracted by that. So, um, also, the palms. Those are palms. This is Palm Sunday. Those, this is not a beach scene, because so, when I first saw it, I thought it was a beach scene. So it's Palm Sunday. So we'll get into that here in just a minute. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are real, that you are the God who is there. You are the God that, that is not silent ever. God, we, we thank you that, that the Bible is true, and that when we open up these words, we are not um, listening to a fairy tale, but we're listening to a true story, uh, and we thank you that Jesus is alive. As we dive into Holy Week this week, and we, we remember Jesus' death specifically, help us always to remember that Jesus is alive, that we, that we cannot stand here and breathe and do the things that we're doing um, apart from the resurrection. And so I pray that that, that reality would uh, embed itself into our minds and into our hearts, uh, even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Palm Sunday, which is today, does kick off uh, a week that is known as Holy Week. Now, it might not be if you uh, grew up Baptist or, um, uh, or pretty much just Baptist, um, then you probably are not familiar with that uh, Holy Week being something that we talk about. But we can't let the Anglicans and Catholics have all the good stuff, right? So, uh, so I, I, I like Holy Week. I like acknowledging it within our church community um, because it weaves Easter uh, into this entire week instead of in, into just one day where we just go, oh, it's Easter, and we have a good meal afterwards. But it's an entire week. So it makes us pause at these significant moments in the final week of, of Jesus' life before his glorious resurrection. So it lets us know, starting today, that there is only, there's only a few days before Jesus is to suffer a brutal death. And we like to, we like to count down Jesus' birth. We like to mark off the advent calendar and do things like that. That's very fun, and it's always fun to, to welcome new life into the world. So we're counting down to that. But I would would doubt very seriously that anybody is counting down to their death day. For one, we don't really know what that is. But uh, if we did, we would not be marking the calendar off for that. And we don't typically do that with Jesus' death either. We want to jump into the resurrection immediately and kind of skip over the events that lead up to it. So when you acknowledge Holy Week, uh, it doesn't let you do that. And so we get to dive into these, into these days, a few of these days, uh, this week. Um, and it helps us even to meditate upon what is happening in Jesus' life in this particular moment in the Gospels as well. So, so, so starting today, just to give you an overview of, of the days of Holy Week, okay? We're only going to meet for three of them, obviously, today, Friday, and Sunday. But there are more, there's more that's happening. So today is Palm Sunday. So this is when Jesus... Uh, enters triumphantly into Jerusalem. We'll learn more about that here in the text. Then you have Monday and Tuesday, which are known actually as Holy Monday and Holy Tuesday. So not much is, is known about you know, what we do on those particular days, but there are, there, there are moments in the week in which we reflect upon what, what, what Jesus is doing during those moments that, that, is lead, that are leading up to this brutal suffering and death that will occur in just a few days. And then Wednesday is, and I didn't know this until this week, is known as Spy Wednesday and because it's, it's a remembrance of the betrayal of Judas to the beloved Jesus. And so we're reminded of, of, of all of the events providentially and in God's sovereign plan that are leading up to it, even, even this, this moment where his quote-unquote friend betrays him. And then you might be more familiar with the day Maundy Thursday, which commemorates the institution of the Lord's Supper at the last supper that Jesus has with his disciples. This is when what we celebrate here, every service, is instituted by Jesus himself. And then, Good Friday. Good Friday, we remember the, the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then... On Holy Saturday, we remember the time that Jesus physically spent in the grave before we remember the triumphal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on Sunday. These are all meant to kind of get our minds around what it is that God has done for us in Christ. That's Holy Week. So today we begin this meditation by looking at this Palm Sunday text from Matthew's Gospel very well known, that reminds us that Jesus, God incarnate, our king, our high king, I love that line in the song, our high king of heaven, is taking his final steps on earth. So I want us to look at this scene in three ways today so that we can see why Christ's entry into Jerusalem is so important to us as Christians, um, but also to the world. This This isn't just for us, but it's for the entire world. So three, three ways to look at it today. One is the king's approach, and these, these are in your worship, worship guide. Two is the king's entrance, and then three is the crowd's response to that. So the king's approach, the king's entrance, and the crowd's response. So first, the king's approach, just there in verse 1. So there may not be, there may not, you may not seem, see much significance in verse 1, but, but we need to see it in light of what Jesus was approaching. Okay, so he was approaching something. Because after 33 years, Jesus approaches the final part of his physical life on earth. That is what he is walking towards. Because here as he approaches Jerusalem, he, he's approaching his impending suffering and his impending death. And it's here in this particular moment when he is not quite in the city yet. He's just outside of it. It's here in this moment that Jesus could turn around if he chose to do so. That Jesus could go another way. That Jesus didn't have to actually enter into the city and to fulfill all of the things that, that, that you and I uh, sometimes take for granted that he did for us. Because remember, Jesus isn't being forced to this task. He isn't being driven to this task. Some like to claim that the suffering and death of Jesus, you've probably heard this before, was was a form of what uh, some called cosmic child abuse. You've heard that before. That for some reason they believe God gets some sort of joy from abusing his son in this way. One author, Stephen Chalk, he's also a pastor, I'll put that in air quotes, is one of those who teaches this. He says this in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus. He writes, A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Speaking about God the Father. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. But this we know, if you know your Bible, uh, even just a little bit, we know this claim to be a ridiculous one. Simply by listening to Jesus' own words. You can just look back a chapter in chapter 20, verse 28, when Jesus says something like this, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. And then even more explicitly in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, Jesus' own words again, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So this is obviously not the language of a helpless victim. This is not the language of a son being forced into something against his will, but the language of God the Son, God incarnate, who willingly lays his life down for us because he loves us, and ultimately because he loves the Father. And his approach into Jerusalem is proof of this. But even more evidence for this is found in our second point, where we see the king entering his his city. Look at verses 2 through 3. Then Jesus, or the end of verse one there, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once." So this entrance into Jerusalem, is better known as the triumphal entry, is probably titled that in your Bible. Uh, even though it doesn't seem like anything triumphal is really being accomplished at this particular moment. So far, Jesus has told his disciples, hey, go grab this donkey for me. It's really it. And then he's going to ride it into the city. Because typically, when something like this happens, typically a triumphal entry during this day and age, humanly speaking, would mean a, a great battle has been won, or a war has been won, and a king has just been crowned. And this would be triumphal. This would be something to celebrate. And even in the midst of all that, even as, we, as we'll see it, as we walk through this part of the text, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, even though it was humble, even though there was nothing really triumphant about it to the, to the naked eye, his entrance was pregnant with all of this with all of this reality, that he would be triumphant over his enemies, that he would be crowned king, but not in the way that many of us would think. And that begins with his entrance here into Jerusalem. So when an earthly king would return to his kingdom after a great military victory, he would come thundering in on his great war horse He would come thundering in on this great war, leading his troops at the head. And everybody would be shouting because of this great victory. But in contrast to this, Jesus enters Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. Now this doesn't strike our hearts as a great and triumphant entry of a king, so there obviously must be something more, right? So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures. And that he rose again, that he was resurrected in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul is saying, the Bible says uh, this uh, is going, or was going to happen, and this is going to happen, and it did happen exactly how the Bible said it would happen. So here in our text, we can say, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in accordance with the Scriptures. And because this is happening in accordance with the Scriptures, is the reason that we can say that Jesus' unusual entrance is very significant. Because all this is happening in accordance with Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that we had read earlier for us that Matthew quotes kind of sums up in verse 4. Look there with me. Matthew said, This took place, Jesus getting on this donkey, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So in all of this we see, this, this, this fulfillment of this royal prophecy. All of this we see in the simple gesture that begins at the, at the end of verse 1 when Jesus simply says to his disciples, uh, go get this donkey for me. This seemingly odd errand of fetching a donkey is the fulfillment of this royal prophecy. So what is this prophecy all about? Well, the first part of the prophecy says... Say to the daughter of Zion, which tells us that the prophecy is addressed to a specific people. The daughter of Zion there is referring to God's people. So say to God's people that this is going to happen. It's a reminder message from the prophet for God's people to keep their eyes forward as they wait the arrival of their true king. And so Matthew is telling his readers that this was taking place right now, in Jesus' actions of asking for this donkey. So the fuller passage that Terry read for us um, has a little more spice on it. So Zachariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And he is shouting this. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here is this, the, these, these, this beautiful proclamation from 500 years before this moment here in Matthew's gospel being fulfilled in the midst of the people of God. The daughter of Zion is seeing this happen right before their eyes. So a couple of things that Matthew mentions from Zechariah's prophecy uh, need to be highlighted. The first thing he says is, your king is coming to you. Well whose king is it? Well, if you remember back in uh, in the Old Testament, in the history books in First Samuel chapter eight and nine, the, the, the people, God's people, they wanted to they wanted to look like the other nations. They wanted a real physical human king to rule them. And even after the warnings from, uh, from the, pro- from, from, uh, the prophets and saying, hey, if, if, you, if you get a king like this, if you want to look like the other nations, these things are going to happen to you, and it's going to be bad. And they say, we don't care. We want a king. We want someone, uh, we want to look like the other nations. So they wanted this human king. And in wanting a human king, we learn in First Samuel 8 and 9 that ultimately they are rejecting God as their true king. He's already their king. And they say, no, we want something that we can see and feel and touch and experience. God is not like that. Now here in our text, Matthew is telling, telling uh, God's people the true king is coming to them. Essentially saying, remember when your ancestors wanted a king? When, remember when your ancestors begged for a, a human king? Well, Matthew is saying, well, he's here. Here he is. The true David's here. The true Solomon's here. The true king that God's people didn't know they already had is here, and he's walking into Jerusalem. Now, I have to pause there and ask this question. We're in the midst of the Easter season, and just asking, what kind of king are you looking for? What kind of king are you looking for? What kind of king are you expecting? You, you, you may have these, these, these kind of false expectations of who Jesus is, even though you sit in here every single Sunday and listen to the Bible being taught and preached. What kind of king are you looking for? Is it someone famous? I've been intrigued by churches around town with billboards that are being hung for Easter Sunday Sunday, and they're inviting celebrities to come and give the message or to attract a crowd. Are we looking for a celebrity? Well, maybe you're single or maybe your king is uh, the husband or wife that God has not yet brought you. And so that's where your hope lies. And everything will be fine after that. Or maybe it's in your health or long life. Or maybe it's in the perfect plan. Maybe you thought, hey, I'll be married by this time. I'll have this many kids. I'll be doing this, this particular job. I'll be uh, friends with these particular people. I'll be in this type of house. I'll have this many cars, and I'll have this much money in the bank. And none of that has worked out. Is that your king? Is that what you put your hope and trust in? Let me just remind you that whatever or whoever it is, will always come up short. It might satisfy you for a moment, years even. But it will always leave you wanting. But the true king never will. The true king that, mar- that marches humbly into Jerusalem on a donkey, quietly, he will never disappoint you. He will never let you down. Jesus is the only one who can say something like this and and does something like this. Come to me, all who who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, the second thing that Matthew tells us is the character of this king that is coming. And he says the character of this king is that he is humble, that he will come in a humble fashion. And this is not humble in the gentle sense, like he's some kind of pushover, but it's hum- humble in the lowly sense. Jesus refers to himself in this way in Matthew eleven twenty nine when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. So this word humble also carries with it the meaning full of suffering. The word humble that they're using right here means full of suffering, which we see depicted in places like Isaiah 53 that says, just to give you a little bit of a taste of this, in verses 2 and 3, it says this, about Jesus in Isaiah, another prophecy. For he grew up, Jesus grew up before them like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, you you can read it later today, is a description of your king. And this is not the picture of a king that we have in mind, is it? when we think of a king, or envision a king. One commentator uh, compared Jesus' uh, donkey ride into Jerusalem with the president coming down Pennsylvania Avenue on a tricycle. It would not be a leader that we would really want to follow, no matter your politics. It would be ridiculous. Because a king is supposed to demonstrate strength, and, and, and fear, and intimidation, and and all of the things that come come with the king, that he is glorious just in his mere presence. You don't even want to be there. He's so overwhelming. Yet the king Zechariah tells us about is a king who will suffer, is a king who will be humiliated, and is a king who will eventually die. And the way we can tell this this is, is by the action Jesus takes At the end of verse 7, when Matthew tells us, he sat down on them. Meaning he sat down on the cloaks that his disciples put over this donkey. He sat down on them. Now, I've said this before, but one of my favorite uh, verses in all of the Bible is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, that tells us after Jesus has offered for all time a a single sacrifice for sins, it says he sat down. Meaning, no longer do do sacrifices need to be made. Jesus sat down. It was finished. And in this sitting, here in our text, Jesus declares himself the humble king of Zechariah 9. In his sitting, Jesus fulfills the the prophecy. And here's a reason, if you're not a Christian, if if you're here and you're investigating Christianity or you're just not sure what it's all about, I'm really glad you're here. You're always welcome. But this is a good reason that if if you're not a Christian, that you should begin to investigate Christianity more deeply. Because we're saying this right here before you, that we believe that a prophecy made 500 years before what we're reading here in Matthew chapter 21 is being fulfilled by this man, Jesus. That should at least pique your curiosity. that's worth looking into. If somebody were to tell me something, you do it all the time. If somebody tells you something crazy, what do we typically do? We Google it. We'll, we'll investigate it. We'll chase down the facts to see if it's true or not. And here you have this, this glorious prophecy. 500 years before it actually happens, actually happening. Why would we not chase that down? Why would we not investigate it? that should at least tell you that Jesus is more than than a mere man. That Jesus is more than than a great moral teacher, as sometimes we like to paint him. Paul uses this sort of argument in Acts, Acts chapter 26 when he's speaking to King Agrippa about the gospel message. He says in verses 25 through 27, speaking to this pagan king, Paul says boldly, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Talking about all the things that have happened um, with Jesus and, and the church. None of these things have happened in a corner. People have seen, have seen these things happen with their very own eyes, so much so that it has reached the ears of King Agrippa. Is what Paul is saying. He's convinced of it. And then he talks to King Agrippa to his face. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Or as we would say, do you believe the Bible? The things that you read there? I know that you believe. So Paul knows something about King Agrippa, obviously, that he, he believes what, what the prophets were saying uh, in, in the Scriptures. And so Paul appeals to the prophets, he appeals to the Bible to prove that the words he is speaking about Jesus are true and rational. That they actually happen and that they actually make sense. I think, I think many times, as Christians even, we make the mistake of wanting to find evidence outside of the Bible uh, to prove that it's true. And, and when we do that, when we run to a, a secondary source uh, before the Bible, what we're really doing when we do that is we're, is we're telling that person that we're talking to, that we don't really trust the Bible as much as we say we do. So when we run to other places because we want to give evidence or we want to give proof, what we're we're now doing is saying that the Bible is actually a secondary source to itself. You You can use the Bible, and you should be using the Bible in your evangelistic efforts. When you're sharing the gospel with people, There's nothing else that you can tell them except what is written in the Bible. So instead, we should be running there first. We should be pointing people there first. We should be pointing people to say, hey, look, look at this prophecy that happened in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 9, and then 500 years later, Matthew is quoting it, and Jesus is fulfilling it. Isn't that interesting? I wonder why that happened the way it happened. I wonder who this man Jesus is. And I am confident that if you do that, it will pass the test every single time. Every time. Because no matter how you look at it, by mounting the donkey and riding it into Jerusalem, Jesus is making a bold statement because he is claiming to be the Messiah of God. So in his essay, um, What Are We to Make of Jesus? C.S. Lewis addresses this claim that Jesus, or or all the claims really that Jesus makes about himself and kind of makes this argument. He says this, quote, In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion, which undermines the whole mind of man. So if 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 you think you are a poached egg when you are not looking for a piece of toast, To suit you, you may be sane, but if you think you are God, there is no chance for you. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval about Jesus. And it's true. If you just read through the New Testament, if you read through the Gospel accounts, you will see that. That he produced mainly only three things. Hatred, terror, or adoration. Every time. And we get a taste of this sort of adoration in our final point. Because not only does does this prophecy prove Jesus to be who he claims to be, just in his fulfillment, we have eyewitness accounts here eyewitnesses in the crowd who confirmed this for us as well. And we see it in the way they respond to Jesus' entrance in verses 8 through 11. Look there with me. Matthew writes, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Palm branches. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So if you've been in town this week, you've dealt with crowds. If you've gone to the tournament, you've got to experience the crowds that move around like a roving band in unison as they follow their favorite player. I know I, I've, been to the, I've been to the tournament, and I've worked at the tournament And at one year, I was working at the tournament. I was on the the first tee and the 18th hole. And so from that vantage point, you can kind of see a good spread of the entire golf course or most of it. And so you knew where people like Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods were because of the amount of people that were following and just moving together in unison. Just huge, massive crowds following these men. And even if you don't like golf, which I don't particularly like golf, you'll find yourself getting caught up in the excitement simply because of the crowds. We have a similar situation happening here in our text. You already had a crowd following Jesus, so he already had people who were already around him as he marched into Jerusalem. And now, as he enters a major city where word about Jesus has traveled, a, a new crowd is starting to gather. A new crowd kind of morphs into this. So essentially you have two crowds of people if you look at verse 9. Matthew tells us that the crowds that went before him and that there were crowds that followed him. So Jesus was surrounded as he entered into Jerusalem. Word about him had spread. His fame had spread. And so these crowds did a few things that tell us uh, that they at least understood partly, just a little bit, who Jesus was, and what he was doing. So first, the first reaction is the laying down of their cloaks or their or palm branches on the road before Jesus. This was something uh, was similar to kind of rolling out the red carpet, and it was what they were doing was they were rolling out the red carpet to a king. So at least partly, they understood Jesus to be some sort of king. A lot of them thought that it was just he was coming to 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 uh, to rescue them physically. To, to, to get them out from underneath the bondage of Rome. But others knew that even just looking at the scriptures, that he was some sort of, of spiritual being or spiritual kingdom that was coming to be uh, invoked with his mere existence. And so how do they symbolize that? They lay down their cloaks on the road so that Jesus can walk over them. So you see a similar thing happen in 2 Kings uh, chapter 9, verse 13. Um, where when King Jehu is uh, crowned the king, they they do this exact same same thing, where they lay their cloaks on the stairs so that he walks on them. They're symbolizing him as a king, and that's what they're doing here with Jesus as well. A second reaction we see from the crowd, or I I guess we could say we hear from the crowd, uh, is is the things that they are saying about Jesus. In verse 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So as Jesus enters the city, the crowds began shouting. And the crowds were not shouting random empty words, but they were shouting specific phrases that, were, that was announcing who Jesus was as he entered into the city. So the first being, Hosanna to the Son of David. This is a familiar um, title for Matthew in his, in his gospel but he, was, he used it to communicate the messianic significance of Jesus. So in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, this is how Matthew introduces his gospel. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. And then just in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 20, Matthew tells his readers that these two blind men who Jesus heals, they use this title for Jesus. Even before they can, they can see, even before they're healed, they use this, 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 uh, this cry for him um, because they know something about Jesus that even the crowds around them don't really know. And they say, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us. So they understood the messianic significance and and believed what they've heard concerning Jesus. The crowd in Jerusalem used the exact same title. They also see the messianic significance, even if it's in a small, minute way. But they are proclaiming to everyone around them, this is no mere man. And they confirmed this by following these words up with, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, occasionally, when I'm feeling lazy or not wanting to interact with my kids as much, nobody laughed at that. They were like, oh, we get that. Um, I'll send one of my older kids as sort of an ambassador for me to reprimand uh, one, of my, one of their younger siblings. Um, doesn't work very well. But to make the point, I am essentially sending them in my name when I do that. I am saying, go and tell your brother this, or go and tell your sister this, that I said this thing, and they need to do it. So I am sending them in the name of their father. So the one hearing the words from their sibling needs to imagine their father saying that to them. Like I said, doesn't work. But it's because I have something to communicate to them. It's, it's something that I want them to do. Do I send someone else to tell them for me? Because to come in the name of anyone was to come, in some sense, representing someone else, or representing him, representing God, and to come in order to set his purposes forward. And here we have the crowds announcing this about Jesus. The son of David, he comes in the name of the Lord. He doesn't come in the name of King David. He doesn't come in the name of Abraham or Moses. He comes in the name of the Lord. Which means that Jesus comes to set the purposes of God forward. And those purposes are what Jesus has been proclaiming his entire life. And just in, in, in Matthew, Matthew records just in, in three chapters, chapter 16, 17, and 20, where Jesus specifically foretells his death and resurrection. You probably remember some of these. He does it three times. And in this final time, in chapter 20, verses 18 through 19, he lays out exactly what is happening or is going to be happening in Jerusalem. Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This is the purpose of God, that Jesus the King is setting forth. And, this, and he does this uh, because of your sins and my sins. And this is why the crowds can say, Hosanna in the highest. Meaning that his name reaches to the heavens the highest possible point that you could ever reach. Because no one else could accomplish such a task that would reach all the way to heaven, that would reach all the way to God's ears. And yet what Jesus is about to do, does. And then in verse 10 it says, that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up which literally means the whole city was quaking. That's actually the word there, quaking, is, is, is used there. So it's, it's to give this picture of an earthquake, of a shaking ground, that the excitement over Jesus was such that it shook the entire city. Now, I think that it is figurative, but I also think that's literal as well. Because if you've ever been to a concert or a sporting event where your favorite team is playing, sometimes the ground does shake at the shouts of the crowd. And I think in this moment, the ground was literally shaking from the shouts of the crowd, proclaiming specifically who Jesus was. So much so, the excitement was so big that the question has to be asked, who is this? Who is this man that we are celebrating? Who is this man that that these prophecies are coming true. Who is this? Who is this man that is causing such a stir? It was essentially the question that C.S. Lewis used to title his essay, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? Which is a really important question. And maybe that's your question today. Who is this man that still provokes such excitement and controversy a couple of thousand years plus after all of this has already happened. If this was such an untrue story or an unwelcome story, why is it still hanging around in the way it does? It hasn't changed at all. Who is this? Who is this man whom the Old Testament prophets speak of accurately? Who is this man who even foretells his own suffering his own death, his own resurrection to the smallest detail and then walks headlong into it. Who is this man who, who voluntarily takes on such a thing as the cross on behalf of a guilty party? Who is this? And I like the way Lewis closes his essay. He says, so what are we to make of Christ. There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. So do you accept this story about Jesus, or do you reject? And that's the question I'll leave you to ponder this Holy Week. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, everything you do is good, right, and true, even if we don't understand it fully, or even if we uh, don't yet believe it. It is still good, right, and true. And, and no other religion in the world can make the claims that Christianity makes. So help us all to ponder the truth and reality of the life death and resurrection of jesus this holy week and i pray we would all come to a deeper and fuller knowledge of who he is and that even those friends that are here that that don't yet believe that they would come to believe in this man jesus and we pray all of these things in his name amen